Hello, listeners. We want to start this episode off with a trigger warning. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing commercial sexual exploitation, sex trafficking, violence against women, and drug and alcohol abuse. Um, So please make sure you take care of your own mental wellness before listening further. Hi, I'm Patricia Grabarek. And I'm Katina Sawyer, and welcome to the Worker Being Podcast. So today we have a super, super, super exciting article for you all. I'm going to let you explain why it's so exciting, Katina. Yay, because I wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Very exciting. You wrote it, and it's also, I know you're going to be very uh, humble about this, but it's also in like one of the absolute best journals out there like basically katina is a fancy research rock star (laughs) she is pure magic and it makes it extra exciting yeah this paper has been ongoing for a long time actually um we started this paper working on this paper several years ago and it was under review for a long time and so It's just been a long time in progress, and I'm very excited that it was finally born. Yes, a long journey, but with a really big payout um, for anybody that, well, you'll tell the journal when we describe the title of the article and stuff like that, but for anyone listening, if you see papers in this journal, you'll know that it's like fancy researchers like Katina. Um, So yay, congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Very exciting. Yeah, so I'm excited to talk about it, and it's also by far my favorite project that I've ever worked on. So it's very, uh, it, it is a meaningful project to me and I'm happy that, um, it was able to, to be, be born. Um, but before we talk about that, um, how are you doing? How's life? I'm good. Life is good. We, this weekend, um, had some, get-togethers which are really fun so on Saturday my cousin Roxy and her boyfriend came over and we had dinner with them Um, they met our little kittens which was fun Uh, and actually Danny was like his family has like this meatball recipe his family's Italian and has this meatball recipe that's like sacred and um, is really big for Christmas and so he wanted to do a test run before he plans to make them for Christmas this year. Mm. Um, so we got, well, one, it was a huge win for me because I didn't have to do anything. He did everything. Um, and two, the meatballs are delicious. So it was a very fun, uh, fun dinner. And then nice. on Sunday, we went and uh, actually saw Allie, who's listening as she's editing this, I'm sure, producer. Yes. Um, Hello. And we, <laughs> and we went to help our friend pick out a wedding dress. So Yay. it was so great. That's so fun. Yeah. That is so fun. That's an exciting, that's a really nice weekend that you had. That's yeah. exciting. It was great. I am very happy about it. Got to spend time Yay. with a lot of people I really care about. Um, that's fun. I actually hadn't seen Allie in a while, so it was nice to give her a big old hug. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so it was Woo-hoo. good. What about you? How was your weekend or what's going on with you? Um, On Friday, I feel like um, we didn't do anything. I think we just stayed in on Friday. We went to 
dinner. Yes. <laughs> we were there. Uh, I went and got, oh yeah, I know. I went and got um, my nails done on Friday um, and then Brendan met me for dinner in Old Town because that's where I was and we went to this place called Gadsby's Tavern. You've oh been yeah, um, I remember your Instagram post now. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, so yeah, I went to I went to Gadsby's Tavern, and like it's kind of a nice place to go, just like when it's starting to get to be more fall, because it's like historic, like uh, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington used to go there. Um, but they have this dinner called George Washington's Favorite, and like who knows, like I'm doubtful that George Washington actually that this was as an actual favorite, but um. I think like because a lot of people in the fall and and in the winter time come to Alexandria to do like tours and like weekends and they have like a million ghost tours going now like you remember oh, yeah. from when you were here like you know you're walking around old town now and it's like ghost tours and historic tours and, I like, did all one of those tourists. ghost tours <laughs> yeah yeah and like I so uh you know it's kind of like a fun thing to um to go to Gadsby's but um a lot of tourists go because it's also like in keeping with the theme of like the historic nature and there was a table of like six people next to us and they all wanted George Washington's favorite and the waitress <laughs> and the waitress told them they had just run out oh and the no whole table was like devastated they all were like <laughs> what no we all wanted George Washington's favorite and they had to like get the menu back and they all had to pick new dinners and they were so upset oh and I was like, no that's they're so, sad. so sad not to be his favorite so um in any event that was kind of funny so that's all we did on Friday and then on Saturday we drove my parents have had um our dog for like three weeks Aww. and so um we went to go get him back uh and uh we went to dinner with my parents because it was our anniversary last weekend and my parents' anniversary last weekend. So we went to dinner with them to like celebrate our anniversaries. And then we went to breakfast on Sunday and drove back um, here. But it is really funny because uh, my parents' dog passed away a few years ago. And I think because they don't have a dog anymore, um, especially, they like love Donnie. And so he's been there for like three weeks and I was like, okay, we're going to pick him up and bring him home or whatever. And yesterday when we were trying to take him, my dad was like, well, you're just going to be coming back for Thanksgiving. Right. And I was like, yeah, but like Thanksgiving's in like two and a half weeks. Like, so yeah, we'll be back. But like, and he's like, well, like, I don't know if you need to really like take him just for that. Like two and a half weeks like you're just gonna bring him back and I'm like well two and a half weeks is kind of long yeah. like and and he was just like if you're only taking him because you feel bad that we have him <laughs> don't take him back if you're taking him back because you want him or something then you can take him but <laughs> if you're taking him, him back something. because you because you feel bad for us definitely don't worry about it. I'm like dad you like really want to sleep <laughs> this dog here right now um but we did end up taking him back but I was like we drove all the way to come pick him up and obviously we went to dinner with them which was nice but he was like I just think you know he hates the car so much he would like it better if he just stayed here if you guys want him it's fine but don't feel badly for me I'm like no it's okay we're gonna take <laughs> like it's back. not about you actually <laughs> yeah it's so funny so I mean it is nice that when he goes there he gets taken care of so well um and and he is happy there he loves being there with them but it was just funny because now I feel they've like grown attached and they don't want to give him back <laughs> <laughs> that's really cute that's really funny yeah I love it yes yes so anyway that's what we did it was a pretty nice 
it was a pretty nice weekend. We, um, nothing, nothing too crazy. Um, so yeah, I feel like we had a nice time. Yeah. Well, it is, it's been a nice entry into fall, I feel like, and I'm glad that you had a good time. And whenever, when I saw your post on Instagram from Gatsby's, I was like, oh my gosh, I remember when I went there. And I actually remember when you were saying that I, my mom came to visit me and we did a Halloween like ghost tour and we went and it <laughs> takes you right by Gatsby's and they tell you about like, there's a ghost story for Gatsby's. Um, yes. if you didn't know, like in the inn part, not in the restaurant. And then they like talk about though, like the thing that's really fun about the ghost tour is like, okay, yeah, they put like a little spooky twist on it, but it has the historical elements. Right. So they like talk about right. how like, well, George Washington didn't want to go to tr- church with Martha Washington after a certain point. So he would stay at the inn and hang out at this restaurant and then she would go to church and come back here. <laughs> and I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> that's interesting. Um, <laughs> So they talked about that and then but the one thing that was like creepy about the ghost tour is that they leave you in the cemetery. So they take you to the cemetery. Do you know the church where George and Martha Washington used to go? Um, Yes. So in that cemetery they're like telling you about like during the Civil War like how they were using the graves because you could see like the um, like some of the graves look like they've been there's like a fire behind them. There's like ash on it and that's what they would use they would start fires like right next to the uh, tombstones because it would protect it from the wind so they could gather Mm. around fire. So there's like, so soldiers would like gather in these graveyards, which I thought was really interesting and something I didn't know. Um, And then it's like, but it's still a graveyard and like, you know, all the spookiness that we stereotypically put with that. And then all of a sudden the tour guide's like, okay, end of the tour. Thanks. Bye. And then they (laughs) bolt. Like it's obviously intentional to like freak you out. They are just gone in like five seconds. And then we're just saying, they're like, uh, what? I don't know. And like, I had just moved there and I was like, I don't know where I am. (laughs) I don't know where you left me. (laughs) Yeah. We never wanted to go on it because actually we lived really close to that cemetery. So we would always see people in there and like, And we knew that there was some reason that they always had ghost tours in there. And I was like, you know what? We're going to find out that that cemetery is haunted and it's only like a few blocks from us. And then I'm going to be freaked out. Like, I feel like I don't want to go on a ghost tour in a place where I live. Yeah. I feel like now that we don't live in Old Town, I could do it. Yeah. But like before when I was like, okay, like we're in one of these old houses that they're probably going to tell us like things happening. I don't know. I was just like, I don't want to know. Yeah. I feel like it'll freak me out too much. That's totally fair. I lived further away from old town. I was like a little bit more like inland from the river, but, uh, so it wasn't like I was living there and I will tell you that the ghost story in the cemetery was really not that scary. Like, I mean, they of course were like, it's sometimes they still see civil war soldiers walking around. Ooh, but like, that's it. Like, <laughs> you know, it wasn't like this person was murdered here in this like horrific way. And this right, like really crazy right. story. It was just kind of, it was a little bit, it was really meant to just leave you there and make you scared because you're in a cemetery. Right. Um, right. So it that wasn't so sense. bad, but <laughs> It was really fun. So if you ever have the urge, you should totally do one of those tours. Yay. Well, that's exciting. Maybe now that I'm not like living amongst the Civil War ghosts, I will. Um, <laughs> yeah. Good idea. But yeah. Yes. It's true. So yeah, it was it was a pretty lovely. It was a pretty lovely time. And I can't think of a transition. And a lovely <laughs> time <laughs> makes you hopeful for the next yes. weekend that you have coming it does. ahead. 
You're right. when it comes to hope, you learned a lot in a study that you did. I did. You're right. I like that transition. Good job. (laughs) Um, Yes, I did. And so that's the study I'm going to be talking about today. This study is pretty different than a lot of studies that we talk about on here because it's using a research methodology that we don't generally have a lot of studies that um, uh, use this methodology that we've talked about. So um, I can give a little bit more background on that. But basically, this is an organization that I spent a lot of time in observing and uh, working first as a volunteer and then gathering interview data and ethnographic data, which basically means that you observe what's going on in the organization. Um, And uh, I like how it turned out. uh, And it is about hope, which I think uh, hopefully (laughs) is a timely topic. (laughs) But um, the paper is called Hope Cultures and Organizations Tackling the Grand Challenge of Commercial Sex Exploitation, which is the focus of the organization that I was working within. And it's published in Administrative Science Quarterly. And it's by me and Judy Clare at BC, who is uh, both my collaborator and my friend. We have become friends. over the course of this project, which, as I mentioned, has unfolded over several years. So I've been working with her for quite a while now. We have other projects that we're working on um, in addition to this one now. But um, I met her because I had read one of her papers and I really liked it. And I basically cold emailed her. Oh, really? uh, Yeah. I emailed her before the Academy Management Conference one year and said, I really, really like your work. I'm looking for a senior person who... um, does similar work to mine but has a track record of being able to produce really interesting papers that you know I I really like to read your papers and I have this data but I'm wondering if you'd want to work on it with me and she said yeah let's meet and I talked to her at AWAM and she was like yeah let's see what we can do with it and now like five years later it's published that's awesome I mean first of all Good job on reaching out to someone like that and just taking a chance. Yeah. So that's great. And yeah, I'm sure over the the amount of years that you've worked on this paper, I would hope you either become friends or enemies during the process. Yeah. So I'm glad (laughs) it went to friends. (laughs) Me too. No, Judy is awesome. Um, She is just a great, she's a great person and she was a great collaborator. And in many ways, I think that um, we kept each other sane over the course of this process because what you won't know from looking at the paper is that, and what you already know, Patricia, what people won't know is that uh, we wrote and rewrote this paper many times. Um, and so I'm happy with how it turned out. And now I can tell you what we found. So um, so basically, I'll give some background to this organization. So the organization that this paper is set in is called Light for the Future. It's not really, but that's the name that we're giving it for an- anonymity purposes. It's called Life for the Future, and this program is a program designed for survivors of commercial sex exploitation, which is a very specific form of gender-based violence where people are actually um, bought and sold for sex in a way that uh, is exploitative and that they um, basically agree that they have been exploited um, in this context. So that could mean that uh, they've been bought and sold against their will. It could mean that they've been bought and sold and not seen any monetary um, outcome from that. Uh, it could be that they've been um, uh, uh, suffering violence over the course of that. So there's a wide variety of ways that people can be exploited. But it's not a paper about sex work writ large. It's a paper about a very specific form of gender-based violence that people um, can face when they're engaged in sex work. Um, and so this... Uh, organization 
provides a residential um, one-year-long program for women who have experienced commercial sex exploitation to help them to work through the trauma that they've experienced and gain a more self-directed life. And so uh, women live in the house as a group um, or along with other women survivors uh, for a year. And as they go through the program, they go through different phases. And the goal is that they um, they receive free psychological, medical, legal um uh, social services, uh, also drug addiction and alcohol addiction services. Um, and their goal is to kind of work through, um, the trauma that they've experienced. And by the end of the program to gain, um, housing independently. So to be able to locate and, uh, qualify for an apartment to gain employment in the formal economy, um, and also to uh, create a solid foundation for their lives so that they can uh, achieve goals that they've set out for themselves outside of um, uh, the circumstances that they were in before. So that's kind of the goal of the organization that I was in. Um, and I, I'll pause there, but I can talk a little bit about um, why this context is kind of relevant to examining hope. Yeah, I mean, I think... The context is really important. Um, definitely want to hear more about that, why it's important in this specific study, and then how, even though this context is maybe very different than the, the way we normally talk about organizations, um, how it can relate back, I think, is going to be really important. And we'll talk about that towards the end, I think, right? Yeah. So, um, so something that is kind of important about learning about this is that while the paper is helpful in drawing attention to the specific issue of commercial sex exploitation, which we talk about in the paper. And and broadly, uh, CSE falls um, or is very related to uh, human trafficking as an issue. So um, uh, often individuals who qualify as trafficked have experienced CSE. Um, CSE is actually a term that's more used to um, refer to individuals under the age of 18 um, who have um, been exploited um, through sex work, but uh, more and more it's being applied to people who are over the age of 18 because there's a greater awareness that um, adults can also be exploited um, in this way. It's not just an issue that's related to children. So um, this organization leverages that terminology to describe the survivors that it helps. But while it's really important to understand more about that specific issue and the women in the house and their experiences and the organization's experiences, this organization is sort of a representative of a broader umbrella of types of organizations that basically struggle with tackling uh, what what we and other entities call grand challenges. And grand challenges are really important social problems, things like poverty or unemployment or health inequities or climate change. And there are lots of organizations you can think about, nonprofits, but even corporate social responsibility efforts that, um, or foundations that organizations run um, that really are aiming to tackle these really important problems that if we don't face them as human beings, uh, we continue to suffer really negative consequences as a society. And so there are lots of types of organizations like this. We don't talk about them as frequently um, as we might. Um, uh, in our literature, but it's important to understand how organizations might continue to strive towards these important goals, because if they don't, we probably won't solve some of these really big problems that are facing us um, collectively. 
Yeah, and that's a really great call out. And I mean, in our research, we do see some papers about nonprofits specifically, um, but not always kind of looking at it in the lens that you're looking at it today. And I think, I mean, I'm sure that some of our listeners are involved in some of these organizations, whether they're volunteering, whether you're, you know, actively employed by an organization like this that's trying to make an impact or a change or as you mentioned working within a corporate social responsibility role um, there's definitely a lot that we can learn from this space and there's a lot of importance on doing these this type of work well so that our yeah so we're not kind of sitting in these problems without any solutions forever and hopefully uh, some of your work can really help make an impact there. Yeah, so that's kind of the goal is to help organizations that are trying to solve these big thorny problems that really have a lot of wellness implications, right? Uh, Like at a macro level um, to understand how they can stay the course towards their goals. And the um, literature on grand challenges is just starting to get to gain steam. Um, But one of the things that we noticed when we looked back or when we were looking at this literature as a way of thinking about this organization um, was that the literature on grand challenges, the research on organizations that are tackling grand challenges, really talks very like cognitively about what they need to do to tackle these grand challenges. So they talk about like, this is how people can coordinate in order to take action to address these challenges. This is how people can like um, carve out roles in order to make sure that everybody knows what their role is so that when they go to tackle these challenges, they can follow a game plan. And this is how resources need to be allocated so that people can um, like unleash those resources at the right time to address problems on the spot, but also like in the long term. And so something that we noticed was that the literature doesn't talk about emotions at all. Which is... And uh, yeah, yeah. I was just saying that's like a little bonkers because... <laughs> These are all highly emotional topics, but. Exactly. And so one of the things that um, we find really interesting about that is exactly that, that um, we know that when you're trying to solve really big problems that are difficult to figure out how to address and where you're ultimately going to make very slow progress because you're trying to chip away at a boulder, basically, um, that it can be really discouraging it can be really frustrating um, and it can it can cause a lot of despair when people are feeling like this thing that we really need to have happen in order for our collective survival or to make a difference for this really important social issue. Um, we're trying every day to make a difference and it's just not easy and it becomes a very emotional experience. And so our research question was really how do organizations keep going towards their goals when they're trying to tackle grand challenges over time? And what we found in our data was that hope was a central organizing factor that these sorts of organizations um, sort of operate around to try to continue spiriting people forward in the face of these challenges. And um, so we found in our data that hope and conversations about hope and materials about hope that the organization put forth and hope as being a guiding principle of what people were invoking when they were going through challenging times, both in interviews with residents and with staff and in conversations that were happening as I was observing the organization, like hope was something that was really called upon in the organization as they faced difficult challenges 
as sort of a beacon that was supposed to get them through. Um, and so we found it both interesting that these organizations that are tackling grand challenges, the research basically suggests that what they need to do is like go through these very cold processes to plan doesn't account for emotions and yet in our data emotions were very central to what was happening as things unfolded and specifically that hope as an emotion was was called upon in particular so um as like a little one sentence preview and then I'll take a pause like we found that this organization actually had a hope culture which Mm. we're saying is like a set of beliefs and norms and practices that aim to propagate like hopeful thoughts and behaviors um, about the recovery of its residents. Um, But that this hope culture and hope cultures in general, when organizations try to build and maintain these hope cultures are actually pretty unstable and hard to manage. And so what the organization thought of as this really nice thing that it could do, which is to like, let's all hope together towards a brighter future actually ended up becoming much more unwieldy than they had anticipated. Um, so our paper kind of looks at the realities of hoping together for a better future and what the implications of trying to organize around hope might be. So I think before we get into that, can you define hope the way you defined it? Yes. So um, so there's a lot of literature on individual level hope, which we um, have discussed on the podcast and in the blog that talks about hope as pathways and um, to get to your goal and the motivation to sort of go down different pathways um, to try to find a way to reach the goal, even though you might have some challenges. The literature on organizational hope is very, very small, but there are reasons to think that hoping as an organization might be difficult, different than hoping as an individual. The individual level hope literature talks about hoping for lots of different things. Like you can hope that you're going to do well on a test or you can hope that, you know, uh, your day goes well or you can hope that you get better from a cold because you want to go to an event or whatever. Um, but when people decide to hope together that there's something that they're all collectively hoping toward. Usually what they're hoping toward is going to be bigger than like a small thing that you might hope for as an individual, right? Mm -hmm. And so because organizations hoping together and a hope culture means something different, we actually didn't know what the hope culture was going to mean um, when we embarked on it. One of the things that we were interested in is like, okay, we understand all this stuff about hope at the individual level, but we don't actually know how hope plays out in organizations. And so that was part of what we found actually was that hope cultures um, were sort of characterized by these three things that seemed fundamental. And they actually reflect fairly well what we think of as hope at the individual level but this was a collectively desired future so people had a shared understanding of what they were striving toward and that that future would bring about um, a lot of good compared to the current state that they were in so they had something that they were striving towards that was big and important and seemed better than where they currently were Um, they had belief that the methods and practices that the organization 
had for telling them how to get to the desired future were true and real. So not only do I see, do we share this vision for where we're going, but we also have this strong belief that the organization, the way that we've decided to get there is going to work. Um, and collective agency that we have this idea that if we band together, we can do it. So, um, it might be challenging, but we know how to get there. We know where we're going. And if we just stick together to get through the hard times, we will get there. And so those were the three core components that we uncovered as organizational hope. Yeah, they definitely do align to the individual level hope. But that's really good yep. context that it didn't really exist yet and that you mm-hmm. had to define it. Um, yeah. So that's that's super interesting. Um, obviously a big contribution to the research, which is probably why you got such a fancy journal. (laughs) Um, but yeah, but that, that's really helpful. Like as a group, we feel like if we stick together, we can get through it, we can do it. Um, and we know how to get there. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'll get a little bit, if, if this makes sense, I'll get a little bit into the findings now just so you can get a sense of how did we. Uh, why did I start off saying that hope cultures are kind of unwieldy and can be unstable? So hope is an anticipatory emotion. And what we uncovered was that when organizations are hoping for things together, they're highly attentive to the environment around them for signals as to whether or not what they're hoping for is actually going to come true. And so the organization was always looking externally or was very sensitive to what was going on around them um, as events unfolded. And when I first started collecting this data, the organization was doing really well. So um, I thought that this was going to be a paper about how positive things can be when you set out trying to create these kinds of changes in society because they were actually doing really well at achieving their goals of um, of providing residents with, uh, you know, uh, so a self-fulfilled life um, initially. And so I thought that this was going to be like just a very happy story. And it ends up that it, it was not a, a linearly happy story at all. But um, what we did was when we first started analyzing the data, we realized that the data that we collected over the course of the two years actually broke into about four time periods that were demarcated by shifts, major shifts in the hope culture strength. And so the first phase was like, these residents are doing great, successes are being realized, people are doing well. And what we noticed was that um, when what was happening in the environment resonated with the hope culture. So like the hope culture is telling us, we know where we're going. We, we know how to get there. We can do this together. When people were looking in the environment and the events that they were seeing could be made sense of in a way that bolstered that hope culture, um, the hope culture grew in strength. And the way that that happened was that people were talking about hope a lot. So we found that as these events were happening, people were processing them in groups in real time in the house, both the staff and the residents together. And so they were spreading these like hope-filled narratives, um, which those stories and that collective like dialogue created all these positive emotions that then caught on in the organization and ended up really boosting um, the strength of the hope culture. And when the hope culture was strong, people were really vitalized, vital and energized. So their collective well-being went up. And what we saw was that 
they started to expand their scope of what they could do as an organization. So during this first time period, people are like, wow, we're doing so well. Like we can do this together. We do know what we're doing, et cetera. Um, all these positive emotions are spreading. The organization feels like super energized and exciting to be a part of it. And they're saying things like, you know, we should take our mission and uh, actually patent it and spread it to other organizations. And we should open a second house like this. And um, we should find a way to maybe take this nationwide. And like, so they were really thinking expansively about what they could do in this first time period. And so uh, we call uh, the the first time period here, hopes running high, um, because that's what was happening. The hope culture was very strong. Good things were uh, things were happening that could be made sense of in light of the hope culture. And so that's kind of what kicked off the data collection. So I have a question about that. When you're talking yeah. about these st- stories or narratives, do you mean stories and narratives about what was happening to the residents? Mm-hmm. Okay. St- yeah. And just what was happening in the organization in general. So um, in the paper, we have lots of like quotes that um, characterize each mm-hmm. time period. Um, but Uh, Some of the quotes uh, from this time period are things like uh, the successes show that uh, residents can achieve a new life by utilizing the organization's methods and practices. Like we're not exactly sure what we're doing, but you know what? We have the passion to achieve this mission. Um, We can band together to support each other to achieve our goals, even when times are tough, right? Like things of that nature. Okay. So when you said like the things in their environment are influencing, it's really like what they're seeing in their specific work. So residents are doing well, residents are, you know, feeling good and everyone's happy that they're making an impact, et cetera. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So headed into time period two, things were going really well. Um, Time period two was really long. So that was the longest time period. um, And it unfolded over the course of a year and a few months. And that time period was like a slow burn where just – more and more things were happening that couldn't be made sense of in light of the hope culture. And so in that section, I unpack this one story about a resident um, named Dorothy um, who uh, had been doing super well. Um, She was sort of a matriarchal person in the house. Um, Residents really looked up to her. She had spent about 40 years um, uh, being homeless and kind of uh, living in abandoned houses. um, And uh, in she, you know, very much identified with um, having been commercially sexually exploited and um, she had drug addiction issues. And so um, she came in with, you know, a lot of trauma that needed to be worked through and on the back end um, really seemed to have made a lot of positive progress. And she graduated from the program and she was still coming back to visit and all was good. Um, As part of the program, they tell them that they can always come back for free to the meetings, um, the core meetings that will help them to stay on track. And so she had been doing that and people really saw her as like a role model and um sort of towards the beginning of this phase um it was discovered that she had relapsed on drugs and ended up uh leaving the apartment she was in school she ended up stopping showing up for school she ended up abandoning the apartment that she had been living in because she couldn't pay the rent and um she disappeared like no one knew where she went and um more and more events like that were happening in the house so when things like that happen, people were trying to make sense of them in light of the hope culture. So even though that's a negative event, it wasn't just linearly negative during time period two. People were trying to make sense of this in light of what the hope culture said. So like on one hand, her story is discouraging because it's like, oh my gosh, like she she has so much in common with these other residents and even residents that are being successful. Maybe if she's failing like 
other people will fail too. These women have very complex issues. I don't know if we're able to address it. On the other hand, there was another interpretation that also popped up, which was things like, um, well, you know what? Like the program tells us that we need to stay away from drugs and we need to stay away from people that are bad influences. And because she didn't follow the rules, that's why she ended up relapsing. So we need to hold even faster to the rules and the idea that if we band together, follow the rules and stay the course, we can do this because that is actually what's going to help us. And so it was sort of this time period where these like ambivalent narratives were circulating where on one hand people were kind of making sense of it in a way of like, hey, this means we need to be even more sure that we can be hopeful for the future because this is evidence that what we're, se- we're telling you really does work and look what happens if you don't do it. On the flip side, there were these other, we're calling them proto-narratives, like sort of anti-narratives around uh, that sort of butt up against these hope-filled narratives that were popping up much more frequently in time period two of things like, well, yeah, but at one point we thought this person was going to be a success. The people we think are going to be a success now, maybe we'll feel the same way about in the future. Like, is this too challenging for us to tackle? So during time period two, these very like ambivalent thoughts and emotions like confusion, concern, worry started to spread. Um, and the organization's hope culture started to weaken and It was just like a feeling of being a little more irritable, exasperated, less energy being in the organization. And at that point, they stopped talking about expanding their intentions for um, patenting their methods, expanding to other locations. And they kind of just like buckled down to focus on their own program and try to be like, okay, well, maybe we just need to get this right. So interesting. Yeah. When you said confusion, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Like, it sounds like this is a confused time period where people are like the story can be seen multiple ways it's not clear what's going on it's not clear how effective things are it could be working it could not be working it's it's just confusing so people are saying they're confused and yeah. it makes sense that then like they're not thinking about how can we expand and keep going with this because they're like is it working i don't know right are we doing the right thing can we actually make an impact so it goes from we're awesome we've got this we are able to you know, win and we can drive this forward because we're seeing all these good things happen. And then when you go through a, a bad spout, um, a lower phase, it sounds like confusion can arise. Some of these situations are creating um, challenges for people to really fully feel like it's the right thing that they're doing, that they're doing the it the correct way, not necessarily the right thing, but the correct way. Um, and so they don't really feel hopeful that they should expand, that things should move forward, that they're going to achieve their goals. Exactly. So, um, so one thing that's interesting is that like in phase one, the hope filled narratives were really strong. There were almost no proto narratives in phase two, the hope filled narratives and the proto narratives were kind of competing in phase three, a really tragic event happened that caused the proto narratives to overtake the hope filled narratives. So there was this resident who was uh, throughout this, both of those prior time periods, there was a resident who was in the program um, and she was just like in every way a role model resident. And especially uh, the the other resident that I talked about who disappeared and, and people weren't sure where her of her whereabouts. She was older and so she was more matriarchal, but there was something about this younger resident that she was really able to connect with other people in the house and like bring them out of time periods when they were feeling down and talk them through hard times. And like 
show them that it was possible to turn things around sooner kind of or to get through um get through addiction or get through their trauma um in a way that could be effective um and she so she really connected with a lot of the younger women in the house and there were a lot of younger women in the house and so um she uh had been like a role model resident she also had been through horrific uh traumatic events that I describe in the paper but basically um she uh was kidnapped by a drug dealer and then kept in forced prostitution for two years in a motel um like had tried to run away multiple times got tased and brought back and she was picked up in an FBI sting um uh that broke up the ring that she was in and uh came to this program as part of that um as part of her recovery plan from that sting. So, um, so anyway, she had experienced extreme trauma and, uh, really was a, a beacon for people in the house. And she so strongly believed in the methods and practices of the program. She strongly believed that you stick with the program. You can be successful. Like all of her interviews are all focused on, you know, this program can change your life if you stick with it and you do what you're supposed to do. And she really did um, the whole time she was there. She graduated uh, from the program. And even after she graduated, she kept coming back for her meetings. But not only that, she got like a great job. Um, and she was like, you know, in her apartment, she had a pet, like she was doing great. She would send pictures all the time of like, um, she painted her walls purple and like, um, she was starting to do advocacy work and doing like speaking engagements to talk about CSE and her experiences and all different sorts of things. And, um, just suddenly, uh, we got word that she had died of an overdose in her apartment. Oh my and gosh. What, That's terrible. Yeah. And so, when that happened, um, that really was a turning point. Uh, that phase is called disappointed hopes lead to emotional rock bottom because um, at that point, the proto narratives really took over the hope filled narratives. And it was stuff like, you know, everything that we were concerned about before, like maybe we don't know what we're doing or these methods and practices are not working or being realized. Like we're never going to recover from this. A new life is impossible if she can't achieve recovery, then no one can. Um, and this was a time period of just like confusion, anguish, loss, uh, grief, concern, anxiety, worry, like all of these different emotions were spreading throughout the organization. And it was just a really negative time period. Their hope culture was very weak as a result of these stories and emotions that were spreading. Uh, the organization felt like super lifeless and just like exhausted. People were like crying all the time when I was just like walking through there. Um, and at that point, people started talking about contracting the program, contracting the way that they talked about the program. And even some folks were talking about shutting down entirely. Um, so that was a real low point. But after that happened, really quickly after that happened, a bunch of residents turned over in the house and new residents started and they had no idea what had just happened, right? Um, and they came in and these residents were super committed to their recovery and they were hitting their milestones. And it was like slowly over that time period, the proto narratives were still there, but new narratives of hope about these new residents started to crop up. Like, Hey, we have a new beginning for the organization with this fresh group of residents. And maybe there's a light at the end of this tunnel and our methods and practices might not have worked in the past, but maybe that's an exception to the rule. And the rule has yet to emerge. Um, like, we're in this together and like that was a bad time, but maybe if we continue to push forward, we can make an impact. And so some more positive emotions started to take hold and a sense of uncertainty was present. Um, 
And that caused the organization to become re-energized um, and more enthusiastic over time. And the organization started applying for new grants. They actually expanded to a new aftercare house to try to alleviate the concern that people were relapsing after graduation. Um, and they started to um, talk more about expansive future possibilities again. So that's where the data collection kind of left off, um, where we had I had been through this journey. Um, and the organization still exists and still continues to um you know, uh, be a place that people consider hopeful and providing hope to uh, residents. So they continue to hope and in fact seem to have learned to have nav- navigate um, this double-edged sort of hope for by bracing for these disappointments and failures um, while hoping for the future together. So the key takeaways here of these time periods is that um, when organizations have hope cultures, they actually don't experience this like linearly positive thing that I think a lot of people think of as being associated with hoping like it sounds so nice to hope and like we're just so full of hope and we're just going to keep hoping together but actually hoping is also encompasses hopelessness in these grand challenge um, scenarios so when these events happen people try to make sense of them in light of what the hope culture has promised when it makes sense everything's great people tell these hope-filled stories positive emotions spread the hope culture gets stronger well-being goes up the organization's expansive but when it doesn't make sense and that's actually likely to happen in these conditions where organizations are tackling these really grand challenges and it wasn't that the organization wasn't good at what they were doing like frankly it was just that this is really hard um so it will happen that things occur that don't make sense in light of these kind of lofty promises that hope cultures have and you're not going to be able to make sense of it and proto narratives will emerge and negative emotions will spread and your hope culture will take a hit and you will have periods of time where you're exhausted and you feel like giving up um but the key takeaway is to understand that um these are this is the experience of having a hope culture when you're trying to do something really difficult and so what we hope that organizations learn is that bracing yourself and understanding that when you sign on to hope for something that you need to anticipate that this isn't going to be an easy happy journey um that perhaps you can sort of fortify yourself to get through the hard times knowing that this is normal part of the process and that hoping isn't maybe as happy as it's cracked up to be could help you prepare for the fact that you're probably going to encounter some tough times. So it sounds like organizations need to think about resilience, right? How can we build some mm-hmm. resilience in if we're going to have this hope culture? Um, so, I mean, I'm glad that the story ends with people starting to feel better and moving towards being more hopeful again. So that's that's good. And hopefully that could continue with um, that organization and, of course, with others that might be experiencing these same ups and downs. And it does sound like it's probably pretty common. Like, as you were talking, I was just thinking about, like, other big issues like climate change, for example, mm-hmm. and, like, huge setbacks that people might have with some sort of oil spill or... I don't know, the Paris stuff just falling apart, right? When everyone's pulling out, like a lot of big things that can happen that make people feel like, well, what is the point? We're never going to get anywhere. And then, of course, then things might turn around with something else that makes you feel better about it. So there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. And it makes sense that in this type of organization, it's a very emotional journey that you're going to be on. And being able to build in some resilience, um, with the team members, I think is really crucial so that you can get through the downs of a hope culture. But I will also say not to take away from organizations that have this uh, really powerful mission. 
I do think that any mission-oriented organization that even is, you know, you really care about your tech, whatever, um, I feel like you could get into the same situation or a similar one. Maybe not quite as yeah dramatic. The extremes aren't going to be quite as high and big. But, you know, if you're really moving towards creating this product, creating this thing, like there's going to be setbacks as an organization that can make you lose that hope towards the mission that you're driving. So I think it's applicable more broadly. But, I mean, it's especially important for, for people that are working in organizations that have this really intense and important purpose. Yeah. And we actually had that in the paper that, um, but, but the reviewers asked us to take it out, but we actually had that in the paper of a section where we talked about where else this might be applicable. And one of the things that we originally talked about was that this could be applicable in organizations like you're saying where they're hoping for something that maybe isn't so extreme. And so maybe they experience these fluctuations on a, lesser basis but the process is still the same um we also said like it could be that it could be interesting to look at organizations that need hope all of a sudden so maybe it's not an organization that's organized around one of these grand challenges where hoping is kind of baked into what they do but it could be like a local pizza place that during covid was about to go out to business out of business and they like need to hold on to hope as an organization that they stay afloat right like and so suddenly they could become either a hopeful organization or an organization trying to grow a hope culture or they could be like a symbol of hope for the neighborhood like if they stay in business like we can get through this together if we all support each other you know so like I think there are lots of different ways in which hope manifests in organizations and this is just one paper the first paper that's kind of looking at that um and so we'll see uh, what people do with this. But we we really found that the stories that people tell are really important um, as these things are unfolding. And so anticipating that this is normal, that this seems to be a trajectory when you're trying to do something really hard, that hope and hopelessness kind of go hand in hand, can help to lessen the blow of those bad times. But also kind of being mindful of the fact that stories really underlie a lot of these fluctuations. And so if we can think about the stories that we're telling and try to remind ourselves of times when we have banded together and gotten through hard times or um, things about our methods and practices that we do have expertise in that are working or remind ourselves of uh, the importance of the collective future that adding those stories into the mix even when things are going badly might have an influence on the culture as well. Yeah that's a really great point. I mean I think this is a huge paper with a big impact on organizations that are tackling these grand challenges because I know it's a really hard to be working for these types of organizations. Um, and so thinking through how to be stronger in those hopeless times or those times that feel hopeless and how can we change the narrative, right? Because while the the stories that you told are very tragic of the, the women that didn't succeed um, in in the program, there were other stories, I'm sure, of women that did. Mm-hmm. And so trying to remind yourself of the good, of the things that have worked, I think is huge. And telling those stories to like get yourself out of that really negative space is important. And I do also think there's something interesting about that fourth stage where new people are in. There's a new, uh, like a refreshed energy because these other people are coming in that don't have the same 
baggage, if you will. They don't have the same emotional baggage from what had happened. They don't know what had happened. And that seems to make an impact. So that's really interesting to think about too, if you're in one of these organizations that's really struggling to get kind of hopeful again, maybe there's some way to refresh, re-energize, bring in a couple new people or something to help you out. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And just to kind of wrap up and add a concluding kind of thought, we initially in the paper are not initially, but in one of the versions of the paper, we had these narrative strategies that we thought organizations could engage in to try to help overcome challenges to their vision, challenges to methods and practices, challenges that call into question um, their collective agency. And a lot of the work that we got was from the palliative care literature about how doctors help people to help patients to continue to hope even when they have like really bad diagnoses and they're unlikely to survive or live the same kind of life that they did before. There's a lot on hopeful narratives in that literature at the individual level. And so we had a a few narrative strategies that we thought organizations should engage in to try to rebolster hope when it takes a hit. But Um, that was going beyond our data. Like we didn't have evidence of those narrative strategies. So they asked us to take that out, even though it was like interesting or an interesting, um, thought process. Um, it wasn't what our data specifically said, but there is more to come from me on that because Judy and I both think that that's really interesting from a theory perspective to think about, well, if stories are very important to hope, then what kind of stories can help bring hope back when times are tough? Um, so we're going to be thinking about that as well. I love that. So basically you're sneak peeking the research to come (laughs) that you're going to be working on. So in a few years, maybe you'll talk about it on the podcast. Yes, that sounds good. Thank you so much for listening to this um, as well. I'm, I'm really happy that it's out and I know we talked about it for a while. This is a longer episode than usual. So (laughs) I appreciate um, everyone sticking around for this too. Yeah. I think it's really interesting, very different than what we usually talk about. So I um, really appreciate you sharing this. And again, congratulations on such a big paper. Thank you. So great. So great. Um, And again, thank you to all of our listeners to listening to the story. And we'd love to hear your stories or your thoughts. Um, Any questions you have, you have the author to contact very easily. (laughs) If you want to email us at contact at workerbeing.com. You can also find us on our website, workerbeing.com. Um, you can find us on social at WorkerBeing on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, we also have a YouTube channel, which is fairly new. Um, also, WorkerBeing is how you can find us there. And finally, subscribe and share our show if you like it. Thanks for listening. The WorkerBeing podcast is hosted by us, Patricia Grabarek and Katina Sawyer, and produced by Allie Johnson. Oh.